Hey everyone, it's Abadesi, your host of Product Hunt Radio, where I'm joined by the founders, investors, and makers that are shaping the future of tech. Today, I'm joined by one of my favorite founders on the scene right now, Delane Parnell, the CEO of Playversus, an esports company that's raised a total of $96 million since it was founded just last year in 2018. Delane is an exceptional individual, and before founding Playversus, he was one of the youngest black VCs in the United States, and he immersed himself in the tech world, opting instead of going to college to bring some of the biggest names in the industry to his hometown of Detroit for community events. And the rest, as they say, is history. In this amazing episode, we cover why it's important to leverage your innate strengths, the future of gaming and esports, and why most successful founders have a series of failures on their resume. Of course, we also discuss the products that Delane is obsessed with. Hey everyone, welcome to this week's episode of Product Hunt Radio. I'm so excited about the special guest we have on today. Um, I'm going to let him do his introduction in keeping with our podcast. So Delane, please tell us who you are and what you're working on. So my name is Delane Parnell, and I'm the founder and CEO of Play Versus. At Play Versus, we're a leading amateur esports platform. Uh, we built this single community where players come together to compete, fans gather to spectate, and where coaches come to manage their programs. Uh, through strategic partnerships with the NFHS and top game publishers, we've become the backbone of high school esports, power and league play, and state championships across the nation. We're based in LA, and we've now raised about $96 million since our founding last January. Whew. That's a lot. That's a lot of cash. Um, that's also like an incredibly ambitious vision. I think it would be great maybe to just like dig in a bit more for maybe listeners who aren't familiar with like the gaming world and particularly like with esports. How do you sort of explain like the goal to play versus for folks who aren't like not super familiar with this world? Yeah. And so I think we have many goals, to be honest with you. Um, I think our, our ultimate goal is to build um, a generational gaming product just as much as Discord for communication or uh, you know Twitch for streaming or Valve for distribution. And you know we want that product to be centered around competition, so how people play the games uh, competitively. Uh, we hope that that eventually you know leads to uh, building a community where 100 million plus gamers sort of gather every single. Uh, week, right, to compete in different forms of competition. Uh, and hopefully we're able to monetize that as a subscription business, right? So like the end goal ultimately from a business aspect is, you know, we try, we're trying to build or we're building a hundred million plus user subscription business centered around nice. esports competitions. That's awesome. Um, so like, I feel like one of the things that you really noticed is the growth of amateur gamers and the fact that there's so much more opportunity for people to participate in this space, like not only just in the established and well-known like tournaments and competitions, right? Yeah, for sure. That's awesome. So let's kind of like rewind a bit because I think of all of the founders who are out in the world at the moment, you have definitely got one of the most incredible origin stories. <laughs> when I was doing research for this interview, I was just like going through all of these achievements, like 13 years old, working in a cell phone store, 16 years old, co-founding a store. I was just like, what? This guy, he's busy. And like, you're not even 30 years old yet now. And you've raised like $96 million. So kind of like talk us through where this like taste for entrepreneurship 
started and what those turning points were that led to you kind of entering the tech world? Because I know like many of the founders I admire, you decided college was not for you because you really wanted to sink your teeth into entrepreneurship and kind of explore the tech world further. Yeah. And so it didn't initially start off as, uh, you know, me just being interested in in tech. Uh, it just I was just interested in business and entrepreneurship. Got and it. I really had this goal to just make as much money as quickly as possible um, to help support myself, help support my family, and just not be in the circumstances that we were in. And so, um, uh, take a, I guess to take a step back, uh, you know, so I grew up in the I grew up in Detroit, born and raised, uh, initially in the Jeffries Projects in Detroit, and and sort of down the road uh, on the west side of Detroit, on Seven Mile and Burgess for for those who are familiar with the area. Uh, I was raised by a single mother. And early on, um, actually a family friend, uh, because my mom was about 23 years old. She had myself and my older brother, and his father passed away from sickle cell. My father was murdered uh, before I was born. So so my mom, you know, she, she was dealing with a lot uh, of just trauma yeah. and finding herself. And so my, my, my grandparents raised my brother, and a family friend raised me initially, and then I moved back in with my mom as I, as I grew older, and, and we lived on the west side of Detroit. My aunt, I have an aunt named Libby, who her name is Olivia, but we call her Libby. She actually really motivated me and inspired me to to pursue business as a as a just a, as a career, like just to do business, right? No, nothing in particular, but just she's like, hey, you you sort of have this knack, uh, and you know it's interesting. She actually is like a vice president of HR at a at an automotive company, and so she knows people, you know, and she yeah, <laughs> and she, uh, she you know she she sort of discovered early on at least assumed, I should say, that I had a knack for business, right? And for, like, I just had this entrepreneurial spirit about me. And so she would always buy me business magazines. Um, So Inc. Magazine, Forbes Magazine, Fortune, like all of these publications, and she would give them to me and and then even go through them with me. Um, And I was super motivated, you know, seeing some of the companies that people were building and also seeing like the, the, the way that they live life through those earnings. Right. So I used to watch shows like, uh, what was it on, on MTV? Cribs. No, well, MTV Cribs, but also like the, uh, my fabulous life or, uh, oh, yeah. what that show was called. It was like on VH1 or something like that. It was like, um, the rich and famous, ah, I forget what it's called. Um, uh, either way, but like all of these like TV shows that like sort of show how wealthy people or privileged people live their lives in these massive homes, private jets. Yeah. And it is the fabulous life, by the way. I looked it up. <laughs> okay, perfect. Perfect. So yeah, so, so I, I used to read business magazines and then watch those shows on her on her TV. And and from there, I was like, man, I have to I have to get rich. And it seems like business is the way, is the way that I, I'm going to do it. So um, I got really lucky when I was 13, my mom you know, told me and my brother that she wanted to get a summer job. So when we weren't playing sports, we weren't in the neighborhood uh, because we live in a pretty gang infested neighborhood. And uh, and especially around that time and with kids around our age, they were all sort of involved in gang activity, many of them being our friends, um, people that we spent a lot of time with. But my mom just didn't want us to go down that same path. And so uh, my brother ended up working at this uh, meatpacking place called Meat Town right around the corner from where we lived. Uh, and now he's a chef. I'm pretty sure that's had influence on his trajectory. And I worked at a cell phone store. Uh, and this guy named Sam who owned the cell phone store, he sold, well, he was a, uh, a wireless giant retailer, so a franchisee of this brand, Wireless Giant, and he sold Sprint and Nextel phones. And he taught me literally everything that I knew that early sort of about business. It was like my first real exposure to entrepreneurship. 
And he, well, I guess like legitimate exposure, right? Like a legitimate business with infrastructure. Uh, and he, he, he really took a, a liking to me. Um, initially, I started off holding the sign. So I was like one of those guys outside of the store twirling the sign. Uh, oh, yeah. I know those. I'm a terrible dancer, too. So you can imagine how bad I was at that job. Um, <laughs> uh, but uh, so I, I was I was holding a sign and then I was, you know, cleaning the store, doing inventory. You know, he, then eventually he taught me how to sell phones and then how to operate the store. Uh, and I was really, really good at it. And at Sam's like like his uh, his stores, like the scope of his his retailers grew. My responsibilities grew internally and I would come to, to work uh, from two thirty to eight or nine o'clock after school, and then anytime I wasn't in school, like the weekends, I would just work open to close. And I stopped playing sports. Uh, I stopped doing everything except working. Like working became such a passion for me because one, I was like learning something new, and I was really like I'm a very curious person, and 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 I, so I wanted to like perfect this this job, this sort of craft. Uh, and then two, I was like making money, and and because I was always busy with work, I wasn't spending it. So I was like saving all of the money I was making, which was great. And eventually, you know, Sam started to teach me a lot about ownership and why that's important, right? As as just a black man uh, in America, uh, but also just uh, in just like in in general, like the importance of ownership. Um, and you know, when I when I was sixteen, I saved a pretty large lump sum of money, and I started to um, get an appetite to branch out and do my own thing. Uh, and some of it, some of it was this sort of feeling of, of wanting more, like this desire to, to want ownership, right. This thing that Sam taught, but then uh, another part of it was, you know, I, I recognized all the hard work that I put, um, into building Sam's dream. Um, and I wasn't, you know, uh, receiving a lot of that, a lot of the reward, right. From like that labor, and so I ended up going to every store sort of around our area um, and trying to talk to the managers or owners because we, it's a small community. So we all know each other and essentially saying, look, well, we know how you guys are performing. You know that we're one of the top stores and we'd love to I'd love to like come in and be a partner in this store and help you guys turn it around. Many of them locked me out the door. But then there were, <laughs> yeah, seriously, many of them, because I was, I was a kid, you know, and they're like, you're like the 16 year old guy with his backpack, like, yo, let me help you out. <laughs> well, yeah, for sure. yeah. And I, well, I was like pretty serious too. I had like a, I had this, um, this sprint leather binder and, um, nice. and I, was, I was going around with like, uh, with like just notes and like a notepad. It was a, there was a notepad, um, inserted within the binder. And, and then I had like different notes or just different reports around sales. And so I could like show evidence of how I personally performed as well as how the stores performed, uh, to sort of support my case. Um, uh, but even then, like people just didn't take me serious. And I got really lucky. There was a, a lady that I work with and she become, uh, employed by Metro PCS and Metro PCS had just started to move in, in, into Michigan, like as a region and started supporting sort of us there. And, you know, I told her like of my passions of owning the store, she ended up connecting me to uh, two other entrepreneurs who were friends already and who needed a partner with some expertise in operating in a, a cell phone store because that, that wasn't their background. Uh, and she connected us three. We got a license. We put our money together and, and we ended up opening up some Metro PCS stores. That's amazing. That's just incredible. I feel like there are so many like epic things I kind of wanted to touch on there. Kind of rewinding to when you first really started getting involved with helping your family friend. You were in your early to mid teens. How did school react to that? 
Like, were your teachers kind of on board with this? And were you managing to like juggle studies with those like work experience pursuits? And the reason that I asked that is because a lot of people in the product and community are in a similar position. They're either still at high school or at university. They want to achieve their academic goals, but at the same time, they're out there building, making, working on stuff, and they're trying to strike that balance. Yeah. Um, so for a while, none of my teachers really knew what I was doing after school because I wasn't involved in any of the communities, right? So I wasn't in band. You know, I was no longer playing sports. And so the, the students all knew that I was uh, working and sort of everyone started to know me because of that. And so I obviously received a lot of clientele because people would bring their families up to the store uh, and then have me convinced uh, their parents that they needed a cell phone, right? Because at that time, <laughs> yeah, not many kids had cell phones, and so um, so this this. Is sort of a new era of like you know uh, of like of kids actually having these sort of devices, and and parents like you know obviously I lived in a predominantly black area, so when when people would bring their parents up, there, there was this sort of effect of one, their parents were happy that they knew someone who was working because they thought that that was a positive influence. And so so that sort of lowered their guard around purchasing their kid a device. And then the second thing is they wanted to spend their money with me because they were they were really impressed that I was this young kid working in a store, obviously well-spoken, presenting myself well, um, and just they thought I was doing something in life. And so not only would they buy you know their device and their kid's device from me, uh, but then they'd also tell their friends and family, right? They put it on Facebook because it was such uh, an abnormal thing. Uh, and I started to get this sort of network effect from people within the community who who wanted to come up and see this kid who was selling phones uh, and also going to school and, and, you know, just doing business, right? And was super knowledgeable. And so I think people found that to be impressive. And that actually, uh, that really, like... People within the community in terms of school, um, knowing that I sold phones, knowing that I, I worked at a cell phone store, helped me have a lot of immediate success. Um, but I don't think that my teachers teachers knew that I was you know, working. And, and, and if so, certainly not the extent of like how hard I was working at the time. And in terms of just finding a way to balance school, uh, look, I would do, there's a lot of downtime in retail, right? And so I had a lot of flexibility to get my homework done. Uh, then and then and then honestly, like you know, I'm 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 super well connected at this point, and so if I needed to get the answers to homework, it was pretty easy to do so. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. That was the hack. That was the life hack that got you through. No, that's so cool. There was another thing that you mentioned that I kind of wanted to focus on a bit more as well, just because I think it's really great for our community to remember, like how much like value we can get from our own like natural abilities and our or our natural genius as I like to call it sometimes you mentioned how your aunt Libby who had a very senior role within HR in an automotive company identified in you while you were relatively young that you you would make a good business person and I just think it's so important for us as individuals to like be open to those like indicators or those nudges or those suggestions, because I think if a lot of us spent a bit more time thinking about what those natural abilities are and what those qualities are that separate us from everyone else or that make us that much more unique or that much more different, things which we might find almost easier than other people, whether that's building a relationship, pitching something, turning a lot of complex information into like one really interesting salient point, all the things that maybe would be really important for a businessman. 
I think if more of us spent more time doing that and cultivating those things, then more of us would know what our calling is within entrepreneurship or as a founder. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, no, 100%. Look, I think, you know, I was really lucky to have someone like my aunt. Uh, and I also had a cousin named Juan who passed away uh, when I was 18. The, you know, those two people, along with, you know, as I grew older, people like Sam, people like Mark, uh, who whom I work with on a, a car rental business with, uh, my mom, you know, really uh, pushed me to to pursue my dreams, no matter what they, they were. And, and frankly, at that age, they were super fluid. Uh, always, if I, I, I'd always come up with different business ideas. They'd help me think through them. Uh, they they support me as I, I tried to launch those, you know, businesses. And yeah, and like, I, you know, not everyone has that community behind them to be able to support them uh, throughout that process. I'm very privileged, frankly, to have had support. The, it, it wasn't support in the sense that they were they were able to help me financially, but even to encourage in words like "I believe in you," like "You can do this," like "Have you thought of this?" Like those things, I think, are really helpful. And you can't put um, you know a monetary value on the impact that that could have on a kid, especially at the age that I was in. Yeah, of course, a hundred percent agree. I definitely think you know there's that common theme that unites people who have achieved a great deal, especially from underrepresented backgrounds. And it is often like that there was someone rooting for them, like someone really like providing that emotional support, even if in an absence of financial support, that's pretty cool. The other thing that I really wanted to touch on was this idea of pursuing entrepreneurship as a means to like maximize earning potential. So the reason why I mentioned that is because I am someone that also went into tech because I wanted to maximize my earning potential. Like I was working in finance and I remember watching the social network movie and being like, oh, what? You can just like build a product yeah, and hopefully be, there make needs it really to be popular. A, there needs to be a social network part two based in LA <laughs> with the story of Snapchat. And I don't think that it should be called the social network too, but like there has to be a Snapchat story that comes out. Right? Well produces that. That would be so good. And like, it needs to happen now so that we can start inspiring the next wave of people. But it's just so interesting, like also hearing you talk about, you know, learning these stories of like leaders through like Inc. Magazine and stuff and being like, wait a minute, why am I going to go do some standard traditional job life when I can tap into the entrepreneurship life and have ownership? Like when did the penny kind of drop? Where I grew up, most people you know, thought of their role within the future like in sports, right? Or everyone had this sort of common thread around like what they wanted to do. And so there was people who wanted to play basketball or football and it was sort of only those sports. Then there was people who wanted to like, you know, own a boutique, which is just like this sort of boutique clothing retailer or people who wanted to own barbershops, frankly, people who wanted to be like massive drug lords. Like there was like all of these things that people wanted to do and they were very common and it was never like, hey, I want to be a doctor. I want to be a lawyer. Like, you know, and so- for me, I, I'd always taken the position of I, I was never interested in like just small time business, right? So like local business operations, it never really appealed to me. And I think that's because I'd had the exposure super early on. And so from working with Sam, you know, I was exposed to how much, you know, a person who owned, you know, a dozen, you know, cell phone shops made, right? And I, I wasn't, I wasn't really interested in that. I thought it was a great lifestyle. I certainly in a place like Michigan where the cost of living is so low, but it wasn't, it just wasn't the dream that I had, right? Like I was, I was dreaming about, you know, vacations in the South of France, right? Nice. Um, <laughs> so, and so 
fine private. And so like this, that, like that didn't really appeal to me. Uh, and so I knew through that exposure that whatever business I did had to be bigger than that. So maybe not being the the cell phone retailer, but maybe owning a cell phone carrier and or maybe not playing on the sports team, but owning the sports team. And so like I'd always taken that position. And a lot of that is through the exposure to big business that I received from, uh, you know, reading through those like reading those magazines. Right. And so for, for me, ownership had always been an essential part of how I would generate that wealth. I learned a lot of that through those magazines that I read early on and through the teachings of my aunt and my cousin Juan and my mom and Sam and through also having the exposure from Sam around, you know, just how big, like how much income or revenue these sort of small shops could generate and understanding that that doesn't support the lifestyle that I actually I aspire to have, you know, I, I recognized that I needed to do something that was bigger. And I didn't really understand what that meant um, and certainly not what that would look like. I just knew that I had to do something that was that was big. That's awesome. That's incredible. I remember reading in another interview that you did how like Jay-Z is like one person whose like legacy is super inspiring. And I feel like maybe when you're walking around the cell phone stores, you're like, but what would Jay-Z do? I, I can be I can level up from this. <laughs> Man, I've met Jay Z now a couple of times. Man, he he is he is truly not the greatest of all time. Not in terms of just music too, but so many black kids are inspired by just his life uh, and his legacy. And all of my friends that I have that also run businesses. Um, many of them have never even interacted with Jay-Z and many of us have no connection to Jay-Z, but, but we feel like we owe him and his story and, and his success. You know, we credit his success to like our success. Like if there's no Jay-Z out here. And I think there's only two people really in, in sort of black culture who, whom we can lean on and, and sort of point to at sort of, uh, at being, uh, at the top of our culture. Uh, and that's Jay-Z and Diddy. And like, we, we lean very heavily on uh, and that's a generalization, but I say that that's yeah. pretty accurate. We lean pretty heavily on their careers to then you know help us navigate ours. And for me, Jay Z is just my fa- it's, he's easily my favorite person on the entire planet. Just just his, like the parallels between his life and my life, they exist. Uh, he grew up in uh, in the Marcy's projects. I grew up in the Jeffries projects. Uh, he was raised by a single mother. I was raised by a single mother. Like some of the things that he had to do to become successful, I didn't actually, I didn't have to do that. Um, but uh, but I understand like why he did that. I understand the struggles that he faced, and I, I love how he scaled his career. From not only being an artist, but being an owner, not only being um, an owner, but, but learning how to be an executive, how he's how he scaled from uh, like even his personal life, from how he how he managed his life and lived as a single black man who was unsuccessful to a single black man who was successful to now a married black man to now a father and also a married man. Like all of these things, he teaches us these lessons that he's learned along the way, some obviously positive, others negative. But uh, but that guidance, you know, that he that he'd offer, he offers us through his music, through his interviews, through his books um, is super important. And I, and I lean very heavily onto those to navigate, you know, my life. And so. Oh, definitely. Yeah, I, 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 and that's just music in general, too. But I, like I leverage music in that way and some of my favorite artists. But Jay-Z uh, in particular is uh, probably one of my, my number one sort of inspirations in life. Yeah, that's incredible. Yeah. His legacy is unrivaled and the work that he continues to do within the community, like uh, let alone what his 
status as a role model and icon. Um, the only other person I was going to add to your list was Oprah. Cause I just feel like as a woman <laughs> growing up watching Oprah and like also her becoming like, you know, billionaire, one of the world's few black women billionaires. I feel like she has also had a huge influence on like women entrepreneurs and just women in general and the world. Yeah. No, I love Oprah. I, I didn't spend <laughs> a lot of time, um, you know, being influenced by Oprah. Uh, I just, I didn't watch the show that often. I've certainly seen her do interviews. I think she's amazing at what she does. Her impact on culture uh, is certainly unrivaled. She, her position within culture also is unrivaled. She's, she's at the pinnacle as well. And so, you know, I, I stand on the shoulders of Oprah and Jay-Z and many other people, Paul Judge, Yes, you know, exactly. I'm, I'm certainly uh, grateful for all of the, the success that they've had. Um, and, that they face and sort of prevailed through because, you know, without, without them, like I wouldn't be here. And so I recognize that. Definitely. That's so cool. So I wanted to switch gears a little bit. I wanted to talk about risk and taking risks and all the other tools which are in the toolbox of a successful maker and a successful founder. This is something that's like really big for the product hunt community. If you go on producthunt.com slash makers every day, dozens of new conversations are being started by people all across the globe who are at various stages of the founder journey, either super early stage, still trying to get an MVP off the ground. Some people are on their second or third startup, just finished raising their angel round, whatever the case might be. People are always having discussions about almost those more soft skills that one needs to develop mentally, internally, psychologically to be able to deal with the roller coasters at Founder Life. And I kind of just wanted to start with like risk for now, particularly with you, Delane, because it sounds like you are someone that got quite comfortable taking risks from an early age. And I want to say this like specifically in the context of other business ideas you had in the years before Play Versus. And I think it's really important to focus on that because a lot of times, just because of how the media talk about the tech world and entrepreneurship and also, you know, just as young people striving to achieve certain things, feeling that pressure, I feel like it's often very easy to just obsess about what people have achieved. So we can be like, okay, Play Versus has raised $96 million. It's incredible. You're also like one of the youngest black VCs. I mean, you're certainly one of the most accomplished founders that are out there. And I think it's very easy for people to stick onto those things, which are incredible. But then also kind of forget that before you achieved all these things, you probably had a few ideas that no one gave money to and no one believed in. So I kind of like explore that a bit so we can give some hope to folks who are listening just as a reminder that is very rarely your first idea that ends up being the one that raises all that money right like there are a few that come before so I wanted to talk about what are those risks you took those business ideas that you just put out there but never quite got traction yeah I think the first one that I, I'd ever pursue was this idea called plenty discounts it was supposed to be a self-service platform um, to compete against Groupon, right? And so, yeah, and so uh, I forget exactly what year this was, but this was before Groupon. Now, I think they launched that like a few years down the road. But um, the idea was 
Groupon was one of the catalysts for me wanting to enter tech, right? Because there was these founders, a couple of the founders were from Michigan, like from an area that I went to school. So I went to school uh, in Southfield, Michigan. They were from Southfield, um, like that Southfield sort of Lake Village area. And, and you know, I was just really impressed that people even, you know, although we grew up in totally different circumstances, just being even within proximity of areas that I've, I've, you know, explored, I've been present in, like they could go on and have success like that. And so I was like, oh, I'm, I like even like I looked at them even as like models of like, oh, I could also accomplish this. Right. Like they're no different than me. And so, you know, the one uh, one problem I always had, like, so so because I was inspired by Groupon, I read everything about them. So I read every article for at least a year or two that's ever come out, every interview. I just studied the company, right? I, I literally visited the website every day and noticed every single change they made to the UX uh, or, or the UI as well, um, or, or new pages that they'd added. Like, just, I, I just studied it. I, I lived and breathed Groupon. Uh, like, I, I was totally, at that point, so knowledgeable. I should have probably just worked at the company. <laughs> the one problem that they had was that business owners weren't really fans, right, of the product service. Like certainly it brought in new customers, um, but business owners had a retention issue with those customers. Those customers were rude to these business owners or their staff. Groupon was uh, taking such a large percentage of the of the cut, and they were already expecting the business owners to give uh, the uh, you know at least a fifty percent discount, if not more, for whatever product or service that they'd offered. And so, like there were all of these challenges that uh, uh, that the business owners faced when they offered Groupon to help them reach new customers, uh, but ultimately they found that the model just wasn't sustainable to retain you know, leveraging Groupon as like a distribution channel or acquisition channel. And so, you know, I I think the best parts of Groupon was that they had network, right? Like there were tons of people on there, you know, scouring for deals. And for business owners, it was one of their first introductions into like basically internet marketing. And most businesses didn't have websites at the time, and they certainly didn't have social media like uh, profiles. And so I was like, look, there should be a platform that offers the same sort of value that Groupon does by giving you a central platform on the web, allowing you to post your own discounts, uh, allowing you to interact with your customers. Like basically, um, like if they leave bad Yelp reviews or if they if they if they have a complaint, they can report it directly to you and you can solve that issue. And but like instead of taking like uh, some sort of, you know, uh, uh you know, rake on the transaction value, we just charge a subscription. And so I put together like my first ever crack at doing any sort of product. I literally opened up PowerPoint and I used shapes to build the browser and then all of the components within the browser. And I had hundreds of slides basically walking through every single little, you know, step function within, within the product. And then I, I got some help to build out a business model build a pitch deck from like different friends or people from across. And I pitched it to uh, this guy named Josh Linkner, who was one of Dan Gilbert's partners at the time. And they just started Detroit Venture Partners, which was uh, like the first venture fund, at least that I'd known of in downtown Detroit. And Dan hadn't purchased any buildings yet. Like this fund was super new. And I met Josh at like TEDx Detroit. And so we're standing uh, on the 10th floor of the CompuWare building, which now Dan Gilbert owns, and I think he's renamed it since. And I remember being in this conference room, and uh, j- no one was in the conference room with me, and I was just looking at the city. It was, it was easily the first time I'd ever seen that sort of view. 
in, uh, in of downtown, like in, in real life, you know, not from just photos. And I was just blown away at how beautiful some of these buildings were. Many of them were like, you know, abandoned and, and you know, and not in really good shape. But it, it was just such beautiful architecture. And and Josh Lincoln walked in and was like, hey, you're going to own this city one day. Like that, all of that stuff out there, like you're going to own. Now Dan Gilbert owns it, but <laughs> I <laughs> You got time. You got time. So what happened? I, I say that to say, um, like, I'm um, to paint the picture. So this is a guy that you know was one of the first people that I'd ever met who you know was covered in some of these magazines that I read, and he had this business called Eprise that worked with all of these Fortune 100 companies, and he was partners with Dan Gilbert, and they were trying to build something that was present in the valley, built the 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 um, the culture that was present in the valley, based in downtown Detroit. And I had this idea that I thought I was super knowledgeable about, and I certainly recognized that I needed some help, and I presented the idea to him, and I'm walking him through. Uh, every slide, basically, you know, like on the PowerPoint, kind of like showing him the like how the product would work. Uh, and he sort of stopped me, like not even midway through, like very early on. And he basically said, and I'm butchering it, certainly like his exact words, but basically the sentiment was like that I wasn't going to be able to have success at building this company because like I didn't have the background. Right. So like I needed more experience. I wasn't an engineer. You know, I didn't have a product background. I was super young. So I was sort of, but he like, he was like, look, I want to build a relationship with you, yada, yada. And, and we obviously tried to build like a relationship, but I ended up walking out of there after putting all of this work in to meet someone that I'd idolized, um, super deflated and demoralized. And I sort of scrapped that idea. And like, I did, I got, you know, I did, I, I didn't actually pursue it. And what, and, and from there, I went into like a pretty, like, like, um, like a severe slump around just mm. entrepreneurship. So like for, for months, I didn't read about anything or think about anything. It was like maybe yeah. entrepreneurship for me. And, uh, you know, now in retrospect, there's a couple of things. One, I wish I'd have still pursued the idea because many companies built a similar, I like they, they had that same idea, built similar products as to what I had envisioned. Still not exactly, but similar products as to what I had envisioned. And they found success. Some even were acquired by Groupon. Groupon themselves ended up building that product. And I'd end up meeting some of the Groupon founders down the road and, to- and shared that idea with them. They actually thought it was a pretty good idea too. Uh, probably too late on their roadmap to pursue, but they're like, oh, that's actually really interesting. And in general, like you can't let people validate you or your dreams, right? Like no matter who they are. And I try not to give people quote unquote expert advice because of that, because you're right. Like people look at me as an expert, given how much money we've raised or what we've accomplished, or even just what, what struggles I face and how I've overcome them. But I'm not an expert, you know, and I, and I, I like people don't realize the effects that quote unquote expert advice has on young entrepreneurs who are still finding their way. And, and I had this massive dream for a company that that was a pretty good idea. And I think I had a really good vision around how to solve the problem um, of, of servicing small businesses and helping them acquire customers and helping them communicate with their customers. But, you know, I didn't take the risk of actually doing so because someone's, you know, didn't validate me or didn't support me. Um, and this was a person that I'd idolized. And so, you know, I think that was, that's one of the, that's, that's one idea where that never got off the ground. And it wasn't because I didn't take the, the, I guess it is to some degree because I didn't take the risk of actually going to do it. But the the reason I didn't is because I let someone else stop me. And and that's, and I think the reason that I'm here today is because I've never let that happen again. That's amazing. That's amazing. I was like 
writing things down. You can't let people validate you or your dreams. That's so important, particularly as makers, because we've already identified that there's something we want to make or create or build. We've seen a problem. We believe we've got the best solution to it, or at least a better one than currently exists. And speaking from that unique perspective, you will inevitably end up interacting with folks who have a different perspective. And everyone is just living their truth based on what they've lived and what they've seen and what they've experienced. And so you're absolutely right. Like, Don't let one interaction with someone, particularly like in your example, someone who you really respect and admire, be the thing that completely derails you. It actually really, really reminds me of something that Ryan Hoover, our founder, tweeted out a couple of years back during, um, I think it was like YC application season. So it was like Y Combinator, Accelerator, you know, lots of founders all around the world applying to join. Um, He often like looks over people's applications or basically like offers to help through Twitter. And someone had written to him like, oh, you know, this is make or break. If we don't get in, we're going to give up. And he basically wrote this like little tweet thread saying, if you're only working on something to the point where it's validated by something else, you shouldn't be working on it. You should be wanting to work on something that even if you don't get into YC, you still have enough conviction in this idea that you're going to keep pursuing it. So I think it was really great that you reminded folks of that. Yeah, I've applied to YC too with a bunch of ideas that, you know, like that, that, that haven't, you know, ever gotten in. Things that I, I was, you know, put a good team together for, we built, you know, a decent product. And so, you know, that that never stopped me either. You know, some, obviously, like I found that some of those ideas actually didn't work or they didn't make sense. But but um, but you have to just keep going, you know, and yes. I think all the failures really allowed me to like get to, to do this idea. Right. So like I had so many projects, I'll call them not companies, but like projects that I tried to start. And for one reason or another, they didn't get off the ground or even if they got off the ground and in, in in, in defining got off the ground as in like we built a product, we had a few people in it, we weren't able to scale it because of one reason or another. And so when I and so when I when I went to build this company, I had been already equipped with so much knowledge around what failure looks like, but then also a little bit of knowledge around what success looks like. And so I put sort of a process in place and not only how I was going to go through an ideation period with this idea, but I also set out like three North stars around just what I was going to work, work on to like, you know, build the sort of infrastructure to the idea. Like here's, here's what I'm going to do to set the foundation of this idea. And, you know, my thesis was that if I did these things, then like this idea could get off the ground. And so um, because the business is a little bit different, this wasn't a business where we could just build a product, ship it, and then, you know, get customers and sort of grow like traditional consumer products have been able to. Like we really had to we had it's a BD dependent business. So we had to get distribution. We had to get um, a commercial licenses from game publishers to like leverage their IP. And then from there, we need to build a product experience. But even to actually realize the, the true value of that experience, like that product, like we needed to actually launch this within high schools and, and, and see how see how it worked within that environment. And so I just knew that the it would take a little bit more time than most consumer products to actually realize to bring the idea to life. Um, but I knew if I worked against setting the foundation uh, and, and if I were able to accomplish that within this sort of deadline that I set for myself, then like I could actually have some success. But I, I wouldn't have known how to go through that process had I not had failure in the past. I'm so glad that you can link those two together and connect the dots looking backwards, as Steve Jobs said, because that 
is incredibly inspiring. That makes me feel like wherever I am right now, even if it's not where I want it to be or where I hoped I'd be on this journey of my project, my experiment, my startup, it doesn't end here. It only ends there if you are of the mindset that you're going to let it end there. And I think that's really powerful. People wrote Steve. I was watching a documentary yesterday on Netflix, and you think about how many people wrote Steve Jobs off. Like at one point, I remember there was this quote where Steve Jobs said, "You know, we only have five percent of the market uh, with Apple, and most people look at that as bad. But I look at that as we have five percent down, ninety-five percent to go." And wow, a powerful quote. You know, and that's such a good way to like. That's just such a great outlook to have on where you are and and realizing that like just because you're there doesn't mean that that's where it ends and and also too i like look at steve's background and and you think about like his background to like especially backgrounds of underprivileged founders he wasn't an engineer uh he didn't have come from a product background he wasn't really a strong super strong business person he was like a curator he had bits and pieces of all of these different um, sort of uh, profiles, um, and he he could curate, you know, ideas, right, in a really thoughtful way. Uh, he just he had this uh, he just had this sort of special ability or special vision to like of what the world was supposed to be and and how technology was going to impact the world, especially personal technology. And, and he he was super convicted around that. You know, he didn't let anyone get in the way of like how he how he saw the world. And I think that that's super that's super inspiring. And we can all lean into that. Uh, And I know certainly that's like that, like Steve Jobs, because of that, like because of who he is in the way that he's done business and the success that he's had, but also the failures he's had that certainly impacted my career. Um, But I thought that that was such a it's, it's just interesting, you know, like. Everyone only talks about the success, but no one ever talks about the failures that we face exactly. as people, entrepreneurs. Um, and, and when you go back through history, every single great entrepreneur, great person has had failures. And it takes time. It just takes time. And it's such a marathon. Uh, uh, and you have to you have to just keep pushing forward to to actually unlock all of the potential that you have. Yes. Thank you. Thank you so much for that. And you know what's so cool about this this narrative of there is ability in each of us, even if we come from these less traditional, less established, less privileged backgrounds. I feel that that is a theme which is also at the heart of Play Versus, because if you think about it, you're creating this global online community of amateur gamers. But what's also really interesting is how you're actually starting by targeting high schoolers. So these are folks who can actually turn their experiences in gaming into paths into careers, right? Like these are people that could now use these experiences to break into tech and break into gaming. That's one part of the vision too. Yeah, no, 100%. You know, a lot of our kids are are super interested in um, going to school for, you know, some STEM-related degree. And many of these kids are already really advanced with just, you know, technology. And so, you know, we, what, what the one thing I think we're most excited about, about Play Versus, and like Play Versus as into where we are today, because I think a lot of people think about our company as only a, a high school esports league, high school for mm-hmm. us. Our first market and and our first product within that market is season. So what we do now by allowing kids to play on behalf of their school twice a year, you know, competing for a state championship, that's that's simply our first product. But one of the things that we're really excited about, and frankly, just you know, 
you know, honored to be working on um, is the material impact that esports has had on kids. Um, we, we've, seen, we've seen kids improve their grades, improve their attendance, find community, um, be motivated to apply to college, and, 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 and more importantly, just become like better people, right? And so I think uh, uh, we, we, we've been able to humanize that through our interactions with kids, through the stories that they write in, their parents write in, their administrators and coaches write in. Um, and, uh, and it's a pretty amazing, surreal feeling. Uh, we actually had a parent fly from Massachusetts with her son um, over the summer to bring her son to our office just wow. because she wanted him and she like she wanted to meet us and she wanted him to meet us because of the positive impact that, you know, being a part of the play versus community has had on his life. Um, he's he's never played on a sports team before. He made the JV League of Legends team at his school. Um, he was featured in some press because of it. He has all of these friends now, and uh, he's just really excited and motivated about school. Uh, and that's something he, he he that's a feeling that he never had. And so um, she came to our office, and um, and I, I walked out of a conference room to meet her, and I turned the corner and I put my hand out, and she just started crying. And like I was like I was overwhelmed, um, like emotionally about like that moment because it made me realize that the work that we're doing here is not just to build a business, but it's also to you know to impact people's lives, and we take that responsibility super serious. That is incredible. It is incredible because that's the transformative power that a product can have. You know, like it's not even about an individual level and an individual experience. It's about a cultural shift, you know, if if this is a way to let people who might not otherwise have even had the opportunity to be in a community, to learn about like the power of team sports and team playing and learn more about entrepreneurship through your story. And then I guess even just the social mobility that that creates, you know, you've spoken a lot about your very, very humble beginnings. Um, but I'm sure there are many people listening who can relate to that story, even though that's not the classic story of the LA based, you know, tech founder that's raised $96 million, <laughs> but it is incredibly inspiring. And, um, you know, hearing the story of that mom and, and her son and thinking of how many millions more stories like that will be created is pretty epic. So Delaine, this is my favorite part of the podcast. We've got to hear about you. We've got to hear about Play Versus. We've got to hear about how you got to the point where you are today, this incredible accolade, $96 million raised so far, building what will be the largest community of gamers online. But on a personal level, being the Product Hunt podcast, we of course have to find out about the products that you love. So <laughs> these might be the apps that dominate your home screen. Maybe these are the tools that you and the Play Versus team rely on to connect with each other every day. Whatever the case might be, can't be the podcast without asking this. So this is your chance to share with the listeners a bit about the products that you're obsessed with right now. Uh, so the, the products that I'm using the most um, are Superhuman. Uh, these are many of them are like work products too. By the way. <laughs> I, I want to be that guy, but um, I mentioned some I also use for personal use. Um, but Superhuman, um, and it took me a while, by the way, to get on a Superhuman bandwagon. Like I signed up and then dropped off, and then signed up, again. Uh, and like since I've signed up again, and I'm actually giving it a chance. I'm, I'm getting closer and closer to inbox zero every day. I've never been efficient at answering emails. I love the shortcuts. Uh, I, I love the, the, the UI of the product. 
Like the, the, the entire experience of email has just been much better for me uh, since I've now migrated over to Superhuman. And, and half of our company is using Superhuman now. And so hopefully they can come out with a team version, like from a pricing standpoint, so we can get some sort of enterprise discount. It may already exist and maybe beta. Maybe I'm just not in the loop, but Superhuman, <laughs> Superhuman has become a product that I love. I can't live without. I won't even write an email if it's not in Superhuman at this point. I use Slack, of course. Um, love Slack. Uh, we actually end up working with Meta Lab on our on our product. We just did some new product updates and we used them for UX and UI because of the work that they did with Slack and Coinbase. And so um, massive fans of Slack. Discord, of course. I love Jason and team. I think they built an amazing product and they continue to just build the best sort of community communication platform for, for gamers. Uh, and I'm really excited to see all of the work that they continue to do as they you know are now building in your store and are now finding other ways to, to provide value to their community. I use Albert, which is a, sort of like a personal finance app. And I actually really like Albert. It's a really cool company. I think they're actually based in LA. I'm not 100% sure, but I love their app. It's just albert.com. It helps you automate your finances and like and even some savings. And so I actually use it for to save for my property taxes. It's a lot easier if you can just pull the money out as if uh, as if it, you were paying a bill and like put it into a savings account. And so I do that, I do that with Albert, but then I also use Albert from to like manage my finances and so like to see a report of like exactly where I'm spending money and like what my earnings look like and like what I like compare that against like what I spent last month or the month before and it's actually a really cool it's a really cool app and so I'm a I'm a big fan what else am I using uh, there's those are certainly not it but I, oh of course like Instagram Twitter I live on Twitter spend way too much time on Instagram but yeah I think those are those are probably those are probably mostly it so Discord Slack Superhuman Albert Instagram, Twitter, Play Versus. <laughs> <laughs> of course, got to get Play Versus in. Okay, one final question before you go. So this weekend, um, at the time of recording, I saw that Ryan Hoover, our founder, put this tweet out, which kind of went along the lines of every month I keep telling myself I should really get back into playing video games. Uh, but of course, you know, life gets in the way. I'm curious, are you still a gamer? Because I know you like built and sold a Call of Duty team. So how much, how much gaming does the CEO of Play Versus get to do? <laughs> well, first off, even in the office, we can't play games until after 4.30. That's a rule that we have. I don't actually play games as much as I like. In fact, uh, uh, I just bought NBA 2K20. And, you know, back in the day, I would have been playing it. I've already, I would have already been, you know, in my, like, well into my first year of like my, my career mode. I actually haven't even opened the packaging yet, and so uh, and so I'm not I'm not playing as many video games as I would I would like to, but you know I'll get back into it at some point. We do have office leagues, and so we you know we we set up leagues for different games. Rocket League, I know there's like a League of Legends league getting started. I just recently played in the NBA 2K league. Uh, we played NBA 2K19. I, I went to the championship and I lost to one of our software engineers named Jono. Shout out Jono. Uh, for beating me. Literally every single person at the company uh, was rooting against me, uh, to be honest with you. I wasn't super happy about it. The problem is I dominate. <laughs> and so, and then, so like no one likes the person who, who always wins. And yeah, of course. So everyone was like, we want the people, we want Jono to be the people's champ. And plus Jono is like, Jono's like this sort of Cinderella story, making it to the championship. And so 
he won. And that was that's probably the last time that I've had some sort of consistency at playing video games. Um, and, you know, because there was like a real schedule and we had to play a certain amount of games every week. And there was like, you know, it was like on the calendar. Um, but just in terms of personal enjoyment, you know, I haven't I haven't spent a lot of time playing video games uh, over the past year. That's actually one of the more surprising things that I found from building this company. I thought because I was building this company, I would spend even more time playing video games. <laughs> and I've now found that I spend, you know, you know, probably less than 10 hours a quarter playing video games. Wow. Well, that's that's the reality of being a venture back founder, isn't it? It's like <laughs> I can imagine that your to-do list is ever growing. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah, it never ends. That look, people think it's very glamorous. It's not as glamorous as one would think. There's a lot of pressure. There's a lot of work. There's a lot of responsibility. You know, you have to you have to be ready for it. Um, and, you know, otherwise uh, you'll really struggle. Yeah, I think that's a really great reminder. I guess this also means that if VH1 were to reboot the fabulous life, you might ask them to come back in a few years. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, come see me. Come, well, look. Hopefully, you can come see me and you know, <laughs> pretend, and and there'll be exactly. Some, we'll be able to have a cool episode. Maybe, maybe, we maybe we can have like a, a special, uh, a special you know episode for me uh, when the time is right. But yes. uh, right now, there's nothing glamorous about about my life. <laughs> or will just see you like going from meeting to meeting on Zoom when Slack calls with your team and in Superhuman getting to Inbox Zero. <laughs> Yeah, they'll be like, why does he never move from his desk? <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Cool. Well, Delane, thank you so much for sharing all these incredible learnings and stories and um, more information about the vision and mission of Play Versus with the listeners. For folks who are out there thinking, okay, I want to find out more. I want to get involved. I want to sign him for a tournament. I want to play. I want to know more about Delane. I want to work for him. Like, where should people go? Well, you can follow me personally on Twitter and Instagram at Delane, at D-E-L-A-N-E. And then you can obviously visit us at playversus, P-O-A-Y-V-S.com and go to our careers page because we're always looking for really talented people, especially in product and tech. Uh, And we'd love to to meet you, to work with you, to learn from you. And we're excited about, you know, what we're doing and, and the community that we're building. So appreciate you guys for welcoming us into your community. Amazing. Thanks, Delane. Hey, everyone. Thank you so much for tuning into Product Hunt Radio. I've got a favor to ask you. Will you take a minute to review us on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening to us right now? Thank you. Thanks for tuning in. We'll be back next week. But in the meantime, share the podcast with your friends on Twitter and tag a guest you'd like to hear in a future episode. See you soon.